Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing, and a few colleagues in the field, and bring it all together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high-redshift universe both theoretically, computationally, mm. and observationally. <laughs> I feel like I should really be saying computationally and not theoretically because I just code. That had flair to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD student at The Ohio State University, where I study the impacts of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. You're listening to Episode 70, Astronomy 10 Years into the Future, Part 2. And that means, Part 2, we're back with more fun and exciting predictions for astronomy in the year 2033. If you missed part one, go back and take a listen. We'll wait. <laughs> just, just kidding, we won't wait. But go back and take a listen, it's worth it. In episode one, we heard from early career astronomers who made predictions about telescopes, publishing, exoplanets, and JWST. Will predicted life on Mars. Ancient Mars life on excuse me ancient mars <laughs> and kirsten predicted that we might even find the next earth somewhere out there sabrina what was your favorite part of episode one did episode one even happen i thought it was all a dream <laughs> <laughs> no uh i really liked hearing the diversity of predictions across subfields I think that's kind of what Astro Soundbites is all about, right? Bridging the gap between subfields. And I kind of found myself doing that with each of the short clips that we we heard from different astronomers around the world in the last episode. And I feel like a lot of them are more interconnected than we think, whether that's connections made through instrumentation or deep learning. We're developing techniques that I think will be really useful across subfields and will have a huge impact in 10 years. Well, if you liked hearing about the diversity of predictions across subfields, you're going to get a lot more of that in this episode. I think we have eight short clips from different astronomers around the world that we're going to play. Yep, eight. Uh-oh. Too many subfields. <laughs> Overwhelmed. Can we bring them all too together? Many, that might be too many to synthesize, but we're going to try our best. Now we're going to continue our journey through these episodes to another branch of astrophysics, which we're collectively calling STARS++. <laughs> Perfect. How they form, their byproducts, how they explode, gravitational waves that they might produce, all of that is going to be later in this episode. Alex, what prediction in Astrobyte do you have to lead us off today? Right. Well, my prediction is wrapped into the astrobite, so I'll describe the astrobite first, and hopefully it'll culminate nicely into what I think is going to happen in the next decade. The astrobite that I'm presenting today is called A Star's Final Words by Viraj Karambelkar, based on a paper by Wynne Jacobson Galan and others published to the Astrophysical Journal in 2021. 
I thought it was pretty funny, but this astrobite is loaded with disclaimers. So, Viraj, the editor, is in the same research group but wasn't involved with the project. Wynn Jacobson Galan is in astrobites but didn't write the astrobite. And I am on the paper with the Wynn Jacobson Galan. So, <laughs> one final disclaimer. But Wynn did all the heavy lifting for this project, and I think it actually captures really well where I think we're going in supernova science in the next 10 years. So, let's talk about it. I am a member of the Young Supernova Experiment, and as the name suggests, one of the primary scientific objectives of the experiment is to find as many young nearby supernovae as possible. Do any of you know what makes young supernovae in particular valuable to study? When you said young supernova, I think of recent supernova. I know that there's like a handful that have really weird light curves. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's what I think of when I think of young ones, but probably most of the young ones aren't that weird, though. Okay, yes. When we say young supernovae, we're referring to the supernovae that have exploded within a couple of days of our observations. So recent in that sense, although we might have discovered them years ago, we just have really early observations of what's going on. How quickly do we normally discover them? Well, that's a great question. The Young Supernova Experiment is applying this kind of ensemble cadence strategy. So there are a bunch of public surveys, and all of the data is made public. In addition, the Young Supernova Experiment uses the PanSTARS survey, and combining like Zwicky Transient Facility with PanSTARS with a couple of other public surveys, we're able to get an effective cadence of, I think, around a day or less. And so... Oh, wow. The thinking is that we can find one to a couple of supernovae per month within a day of explosion. That's the goal. So how many stars are exploding that are nearby on a given, I don't know, year? Ooh, the number I always throw out, I don't have the number in a year, but if you bear with me for a second, I could probably do the dimensional analysis. (laughs) A supernova explodes every second within a redshift of one. Whoa. Wow, that's wow. actually way more common than I thought. This is within our entire universe. This isn't a statistic within our galaxy, right? Okay. Correct. Correct. That's right. Every second. That's amazing. Okay, so that's a little overview into the survey. Let's talk a little bit about what happens in a supernova explosion. Before the more slower moving ejecta moves outward in an explosion, you first have the initial shock wave. Shock wave rapidly propagates outward. And for massive stars, this shock wave, and the ejecta a little bit later on, can slam into material in the surrounding environment of the star. This surrounding material is called circumstellar material. Circumstellar, around the star, material, it's material. We don't know what's in it. The properties of this interaction can shed light into the final moments of a star's life. And one of the telltale signatures of interaction in a young supernova is a set of narrow spectral lines showing what's called flash ionization, where the supernova shock rapidly heats and ionizes slower-moving elements in the circumstellar material. So it flash ionizes it, and now you see these ionization lines in the, the earliest spectrum of the supernova. And that can tell us the composition of this circumstellar material. Now, for a long time, we believed that circumstellar material was relatively rare in core-collapse supernovae, and that most massive stars exploded in relatively pristine environments. But as we found more explosions and studied them at the earliest phases, we found that actually interaction might be relatively common. So, 
The question is, if circumstellar material surrounds most dying massive stars, how did that material get there in the first place? Hmm. That's where this astrobite and associated research paper come in and enter a completely new regime in supernova observations. So this paper followed Supernova 2020 TLF, which was a type 2p supernova that was only 37 megaparsecs away in the galaxy NGC 5731. So it was very nearby. Alex, that sounds really far. It does sound very far, (laughs) but actually, cosmologically, 37 megaparsecs is practically nothing. Okay, how how big is the local group again? Three megaparsecs. And at what number did you say again? 30. So it's 10 times the diameter of the local group away. That's okay. That that gives me context. That's not crazy. Yeah, that's pretty close. Which instrument was this discovered in? It was discovered by the Atlas survey. And early spectroscopy of the supernova showed flash ionization lines of hydrogen and helium, showing that there was surrounding circumstellar material. What was exciting about 2020 TLF, and maybe this is to say that all the credit should not go to Atlas, because the young supernova experiment had archival imaging at the supernova site for multiple epochs in the last year before the star exploded. And if you look back through the data, you can see enhanced emission in consistent across R, I, and Z bands for about 100 days leading up to the explosion itself. And this is the very first time that this kind of what's called precursor emission has been discovered in an otherwise normal type 2p supernova. And its luminosity points to significantly higher mass loss rates before explosion than we would expect for a dying red supergiant. So do we think that this is something common that should be happening for these stars that are dying? And this is just the first time we've seen it? Or was this something weird that we didn't expect to find? Yeah, brilliant question. And this is the crux of my prediction for the next decade. To find more of these and distinguish between how these stars are losing mass before they explode, we need continuous monitoring of stars before they explode. We don't really know yet what stars are going to explode in advance, so the only real way to do this is to scan every star in the sky continuously. And this is where the Verisi Rubin Observatory is going to really stand out. So it'll start in 2025. It'll scan the entire southern sky every three to four nights down to 25th magnitude for a total of a decade, which is insane. And this will tell us how common this actually is and will allow us to distinguish between physics of the mass being lost. So my prediction is that in 10 years we'll have statistically rigorous estimates for how many massive stars lose material before exploding, how much they tend to lose, and how they lose it, and how this mass loss behavior might impact the explosion itself that we witness. The one that you're talking about, the first one ever discovered, was not discovered with Rubin. What made it possible to discover that? Because Stars has been going on for years, right? There's Zwicky, there's DES, Mm -hmm. there are a lot Mm -hmm. of... Uh, you know, large sky, not all sky, but large sky surveys, right? What about the timing made this one detectable? 
Yeah, so the nice thing about the young supernova experiment is that it tries to mimic a similar footprint as the Zuiki Transient facility significantly deeper. So, one, we just got lucky because this thing was nearby. Two, mm-hmm. the young supernova experiment's been operational since, I think it's 2020 the survey began. So it's really just only in the last couple of years that we've been able to establish a nearly full sky search down to this sensitivity in the northern hemisphere. Is it possible, has there been an effort to predict what the occurrence rate of these would be? That is, like, given the current surveys and equipment, were we expecting to find 10 a year and have only found one and therefore were suspect about the physics? Or is this one actually so unbelievably good that we got incredibly lucky and we would never have found this if not for dumb luck? It's actually not until Wynn and colleagues went back in the archival PanStars data and re-reduced the data before the explosion, they saw this variability. This variability by itself would not be significant enough to send off some trigger by any of our normal supernova reduction pipelines. Mm. And probably we didn't expect it because this is a, otherwise a pretty normal-looking supernova. So it was only after going back and digging in, getting really deep limits, did we see, yeah, there is some, some flickering right before the supernova goes off. But like I said, it's the first time, so we don't really have any idea for whether that's something we should have expected or not. And since you're involved in this study, I'm curious, what made the authors go back and re-reduce the data? Yeah, so the early emission of supernovae that has started to show some of these weird interaction signatures put some constraints on when the progenitor star lost the material. And so you can do some back-of-the-envelope calculations and say, well, if the material is moving outward after some some mass loss at this particular rate, and then it explodes into it with a faster moving shock, then this before the explosion is approximately when I would expect to see this material potentially being lost. But actually making the jump to this is a really nearby supernova, maybe we could actually directly measure this material being lost for the first time. That's a a leap that I think had not been taken before. And just because we had deep limits on the observations and we had this consistent photometry going back for a year before explosions, we we just thought maybe we'd try it. I think it's interesting, and this will come up again in the bite that I'm presenting, how the variability and the uniqueness of the supernova was learned about by revisiting archival data. And I think Briston's short clip from last time described, she was saying something about how like even the Hubble Space Telescope data, they're still making developments using HST archival data. So I think that's just really interesting. Most of my dissertation is from archival data. So I'm a big fan of archival. I have no doubt that Rubin data will be combed over for decades with people still finding new things that the first set of people never even thought to investigate. The treasure hunt of astronomy continues. <laughs> and that's my astrobite and my associated prediction. I'll make a wilder prediction at the very end of the show, but that's my tamer prediction and what I'm really excited about. I am so excited to hear what the wild <laughs> prediction is. Me too. Now we get to hear from more scientists making predictions about the state of the field in 2033. This time from the vantage point of stars, supernova, and the like. As in part one, these clips were recorded in the ordinary business of real astronomers, so you may hear some moderate background noise. First up, we're hearing from Tyler Holland Ashford. 
And he is a Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics postdoctoral fellow. Okay, so in 2033, for the field of uh, X-rays, specifically supernova remnants, uh, our big telescope will be CRISM, the X-ray imaging and spectroscopy mission, which is theoretically launching this year, and we'll be able to have, you know, I guess, almost 10 years of looking at the observations from that and making use of its incredibly high spectral resolution to get more detailed observations and models of supernova remnants than we've really ever been able to have before, looking at specific lines from elements and being able to measure the ratios of different lines to get you know, more diagnostics of the plasma conditions of nucleosynthesis and just further understanding remnants and funneling that back to understanding explosions themselves. So yeah, that should be, that should be a big thing. And then theoretically, we'll also be focusing on some uh, next, next gen X-ray telescopes that we're trying to get out there, depending on what happens with Athena, potentially starting the process for Lynx for, uh, for the US's side, and then also the various probe missions, which if one or two get accepted by NASA, we'll be, we'll be working on those, seeing like what's the, what niche needs to be filled in X-ray telescopes for furthering our understanding. Thanks, Tyler. That was interesting. I think he might be the first one that talks about like line element ratios and the future of those. I just hadn't thought about it the way that Tyler was putting it. Why x-rays? Anybody understand that? Because of... Oh, it's synchrotron, synchrotron radiation. Synchrotron radiation. That's right. Yes. Okay. Cool. All right. What's the next clip we have? So the next clip we have is from Sebastian Gomez, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Space Telescope Science Institute. Sebastian is another transient fellow, so I'm hoping that's what he'll talk about. I work in the field of transients, where I look for the most extreme astrophysical explosions, and this field has been growing crazy fast in the past few years. Today, we are finding thousands of transients every month, and the next few years will be even more revolutionary as new surveys come online, and we're going to be finding hundreds of thousands of transients every month. I predict we're going to find things that we know are possible, that, but that we have not confirmed yet, uh, such as a white dwarf being destroyed by a massive black hole, or a parent satellite supernova, which is the explosion of the earliest stars in the universe. But I think the most exciting prediction is that we're going to find new types of transients we were not even expecting, because we find something new every time a new survey begins. I really like Sebastian's voice. I would <laughs> love to listen to him read a, an audiobook. <laughs> I really like Sebastian's prediction. <laughs> I think that it's really cool. He does have a point that when these new surveys come out, we almost always detect something new. So I think that that's probably something that is really something that we can expect. But also, he was very specific about the white dwarf being eaten by a black hole. So I'm going to hold him <laughs> to that one. <laughs> to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, the way that he talked about the known unknowns versus the unknown unknowns, right, that's a really interesting sort of information theoretic approach to this where you might be able to predict the things we don't yet understand, but we'd like to understand. But can you at all predict the things that 
could happen that no one understands yet. The unknown unknowns are things that, in theory, you couldn't have predicted before they happened. That's sort of the definition. So we can't possibly get those right because otherwise they wouldn't be unknown unknowns. Yeah, I think this is also a case for, like Sabrina was talking about, continued searches through the archival data. Because especially when all this data goes public and you're just making targeted queries for specific subsets of it, it's really only once you start asking specific questions that you end up seeing what you didn't expect. Great point. The next clip we have is Katie Brevik who is a Flatiron Research Fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics and will very soon be starting a faculty appointment at Carnegie Mellon this fall. Woo! Go Katie! Go Katie! Hello, Astro Soundbites. Uh, this is Katie Brevik, and I am here to tell you what I think uh, my predictions are for what astronomy is going to be doing or what's going to be going on in astronomy 10 years from now in 2033. Um, so I mostly work on binary stars, binary star populations, and gravitational wave progenitors. So in 10 years from now, uh, a lot of people in my community are going to be getting extremely excited about the hopefully uh, very nearby launch of LISA in the mid-2030s. LISA is a space-based gravitational wave observatory. And it will be able to observe basically every double white dwarf binary in our galaxy as long as the orbital period is less than something like 10 minutes. Um, so that's going to completely change the way uh, that we do astronomy with stellar populations, let alone all of the amazing physics that Lisa will do in terms of observing mergers of supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies and um, stellar mass sources falling into supermassive black holes. Honestly, Lisa is just a really uh, exciting um, observatory. And so even though it seems far away, uh, in 10 years from now, people are going to be really excited about it. Um, with that said, uh, Lisa may not be uh, totally on schedule, knock on wood, by the time we get to 2033. And I think between now and then, something that's really going to change significantly, and I hope changes significantly, is that the production of space-based um, telescopes that are on small sats or cube sats uh, is going to be ramped up significantly. And what I hope for here is that um, we as a community find figure out a way to make sort of sustainable survey telescopes that we launch into space so that we can cover um, all sky observations at all wavelengths. Um, this will be extremely exciting uh, for transient follow-up of gravitational wave sources, but of supernovae in general, and really any transient phenomena uh, that, are, that exists in any photometric wave band. I really hope that we can move forward with these sort of constellations of small sets and CubeSats that can really make uh, an all-sky movie similar to what the Rubin Observatory is going to do, but in multiple wavelength bands. Uh, we'll see if it happens, but I'm really optimistic. Thanks. That's really exciting. I like how she mentioned multiple wavelengths because I was thinking these short clips that we've been listening to have focused, I think, mostly on like optical transients. So the fact that she kind of shouted out other wavelengths and also the CubeSats thing, stay tuned for closer to the end of this episode where a faculty at University of Melbourne will also discuss his excitement for CubeSats.
One thing that would be really cool, maybe this is like a 2043 sort of prediction if we're going this route with white dwarves. Mm. Planets get eaten by white dwarves. So if we keep increasing our sensitivity, maybe Mm. we could see one that gets eaten. And that's very interesting for like planet formation because you don't really get to see the insides of a planet very often. Oh, wow. Yeah, for sure. Okay, the next astronomer we interviewed was Nicole Lloyd Ronning. Nicole is a research scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. In 10 years' time, we'll have more and better gravitational wave detectors. And as cliche as it is, this is a new, this really is a new window into the universe. Um, and I think we'll know a lot more about black holes of all sizes. We'll see supermassive black hole mergers. We'll detect intermediate mass black holes. We'll learn more about um, black holes, stellar mass black holes um, in Aegean accretion disks. I think there's going to be a lot happening in that field, in that area of my field. Um, I think in general, we'll know more about interactions between bodies in space. Um, And we won't still fully understand how a star dies, and we still won't know what dark energy is. (laughs) The most pessimistic of all of these. (laughs) But there's nothing wrong with a null result. The idea of the intermediate black holes has me interested because there's so much about the theory that we don't know here. And the fact that we're detecting a population in the you know single digits of candidates for intermediate mass black holes leads us to believe they're either so much harder to detect or don't exist, both of which are really interesting results. So that's an area where we know so little that incremental improvement is enormous. So last but not least in this section, we'll have Reinhold Wilcox, who's a postdoc at Monash University in Melbourne. And I think his follows really well from the one that we just heard by Nicole on gravitational wave predictions. I am so excited to hear another Australian accent. (laughs) Oh, by the way, he's American. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Huge letdown. Wow, way to go, Reinhold. (laughs) I think the cool thing about astronomy is that you really have no idea. We have no idea what big discoveries are going to come along in the next 10 years that are going to change the direction dramatically. Um, Of things that we think we probably will see, I think the big one will be uh, a huge influx of um, binary black hole, binary neutron star, and black hole neutron star detections from the LIGO Virgo collaboration. Um, I think that this is pretty, pretty well expected. We know that we'll see on the order of a thousand to tens of thousands of, of these detections. Um, and this will really help to constrain models of binary evolution, both from the isolated side, which I do, and the dynamical formation side. Um, I think that there's uh, pretty good reason to believe that we'll see a lot of these and, uh, and reason to believe that they will inform a lot of our science uh, a lot. Um, I think one of the big uncertainties right now is in the spin distributions uh, of these binaries and having uh, more powerful, more sensitive detectors will help to constrain these spins. Um, and the spin information uh, tells us a lot about the formation channels. So I think that this is something that people are currently doing and, and, and making predictions for, and having the data for that will help a lot. Um, that's maybe one of the safer predictions. I think one of the ones that we know less well is what sort of uh, information we'll get from um, a lot of the uh, PTAs, the pulsar timing arrays, 
that are looking for longer wavelength um, binaries, things like supermassive uh, black holes in the centers of galaxies, um, and, uh, and perhaps a, a, um, uh, a statistical background, um, uh, uh, gravitational wave background, you know, th things that they may see, but we don't know. We haven't seen yet, so we don't know that they'll see this. Um, I think that's where the really interesting science will come from. If they, if they do make detections, I think that will help to revolutionize both cosmology and large-scale um, galactic astrophysics. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting potential there that um, you know, we'll have to wait and see if these detections come through, but it looks pretty good that in the next year or so we'll start to, start to get these detections. And as you build up a larger population of them, you can do some really interesting uh, science on that. I think he's trying to hint at the potential for nanograv, which is the American pulsar timing array releasing a result soon. Maybe. Not sure, Reinhold, but I've heard about this at the recent Australian conferences, and I know it's going to be highly contested, So, but it, it's still exciting. You know, it's funny because it took 40 years to detect the first gravitational waves, right? And some people were losing faith, but now that they've done it, we're willing to wait another 40 years for the next one. <laughs> So hopefully it won't take that long. Thanks so much again, Reinhold, and all of our other speakers. Sorry, none of you are Australian, but that's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> now it's time for the fortnightly phonogram for futuristic physics and the far future. How do you guys come up with these names? <laughs> <laughs> Years of practice. I love that. Sounds like a European nightclub. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's one of my favorites ever, I think. That's so fun. <laughs> I'm ready to get down to it. It's very different. I'm going to vote some sort of pulsar something or other. Mm. Because it's got great timing. Yeah, like an accretion disk or something hitting something repetitively i was almost gonna say like synchrotron radiation sonified but maybe that would be <laughs> a bit too much <laughs> yeah it's got to be yeah really steady so maybe it's 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 a it's a bi it's an eclipsing binary or something of that nature that's incredibly steady whatever it is i really want someone to turn this into a remix mm. or like a I, I don't know but i need this in my life <laughs> okay, so it's very different from any of the sonifications we've had in past episodes. This is a sonification out of the European Space Agency, and it's a sonification of real-time data input from ESA Gaia, from the Gaia mission. So oh. each of those little blips is a measure of brightness from a different astronomical source. Wow. Each star has been rendered with a different sound with pitch corresponding to the brightness of the star. Okay. And so across the full one-minute sonification, there are 650,000 measurements taken of 113,000 astronomical sources. So you're telling me that Gaia needs to release a whole soundtrack. The Gaia Dance Club. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, that's a great space sound. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it quite a bit. It's not annoying. I expected it would get annoying, but instead it's just kind of pleasant. Good space sound, Alex. Thank you very much. We should keep this prediction train moving. So let's move beyond the Milky Way, far, far beyond it. Now to the early universe. Sabrina is going to tell us a little something about quasars and provide a prediction for the future of the past, which is maybe just the present, (laughs) right? (laughs) I don't know. Either way, go ahead, Sabrina. Great. So my astrobite this week on this very special episode is called A Missing Link Between High Redshift Galaxies and Quasars. It's by Sahil Hegde. And it's based on a paper by S. Fujimoto et al., which was published in Nature in 2022. And as Alex alluded to, this bite is all about quasars. It's about a quasar that was, maybe you guessed it, discovered in Hubble Space Telescope archival data. And they pulled this quasar out and were like, whoa, this is super interesting and comes from this really extreme galaxy, which I'll talk about more later. Thanks to Sahil... He taught me this new word, which is portmanteau, which mm. will help us in understanding what a quasar actually is. So quasar is combination of the words quasi-stellar object. So basically, they're these extremely luminous, active galactic nuclei. There's a lot of confusion about like what a quasar actually is and where the line is drawn. I talk to people that work on quasars, and they're like, it's kind of subjective at times. Like, it's not really its orientation, but it's can be affected by its orientation, and then luminosity is basically the key thing in thinking about quasars. So basically, quasars are the most luminous AGN, and all AGN are not quasars, but all quasars are AGN, if that helps at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I feel like I definitely was under the impression that it was the orientation. Yeah, it is part, like the axis is part of it, but I think that people don't exclusively use that for the definition, at least in the high redshift quasar community. Maybe low redshift people are thinking differently. Astrobytes published a guide a few years ago about all the different types of AGN. And so there are maybe 20, 30, 40 terms on this list. Depends on orientation, radio bright, safer, all these things that like if you're in the know means something, but if you're not, they all seem like they're probably the same. So if that is something that listeners may find useful, we will link to it. Yeah. And I guess I should note that potentially this definition differs for high redshift quasars. I mostly work on high redshift quasars. So maybe low redshift people have a much more like distinct definition. The low and high redshift community sometimes don't interact as much as they should. Well, the high redshift population is so far away. They're in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're living in the past. Yes, that's why. <laughs> We've discovered many quasars with redshifts between z equals 1 and z equals 3, and they've been studied extensively. But quasars like above redshift 5, like between 5 and 7, um, haven't been studied as extensively because they're really far away, as Alex was just saying. So this quasar is from redshift about 7.2, from 700 million years after the Big Bang. 
And the reason this paper was in Nature and why it was so interesting is that it's the earliest observation of a quasar in this part of its evolutionary history. So simulations have shown that quasars obscured in dust in starburst galaxies will transition into these luminous and unobscured quasars, so where the dust is like blown out by all these stars forming. And it's also really interesting because there's a symbiotic relationship between black holes and their galaxies. And I think also with the James Webb Space Telescope, recently, the first high redshift quasar was resolved in optical infrared from its host galaxy. So we can actually see the stellar light surrounding the quasar versus before we could use maybe ALMA or submillimeter observations to see the dust. We had never actually resolved the stellar light. It's really interesting because that kind of like unlocks a whole world into discovering more about this relationship between black holes and their galaxies. Because now we can actually get, you know, a more accurate stellar mass measurement, can understand the dynamics better. It's really exciting. And I think that's kind of part of my prediction as well. And that's a big part of my PhD as well as studying that with JWST and using quasar observations to do that. So these models have a lot of difficulty explaining such rapid growth of black holes, which is why we need more observations and why this quasar is so interesting. The way the authors confirm that the quasar is actually a quasar is they use Hubble Space Telescope spectrum and they compare the spectral energy distributions. So that's just, you know, energy as a function of frequency, basically, to low redshift quasars. So the quasar's spectra fits in between this blue quasar and like a super starbursty galaxy SED. So it's kind of in this transitionary state. The really interesting thing about this quasar is it that it's in this insane galaxy. The star formation rate is 1,500 solar masses per year in a 500 parsec radius. To put this in perspective, the Milky Way is one solar mass per year in a radius of 15 kiloparsecs. It's in the transitionary state. Is that to say that in some amount of time it will move from from this central state to a more active state or to a more passive state or it will stay forever in this intermediate state? Probably a more active state. So they think that this quasar is just not fully formed. It's like a little baby quasar. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually one of the subtitles in this Ashurbet was baby quasar. <laughs> Most quasars are blue, meaning that dust in their accretion disk does not obscure their light and they peak in the UV. With this quasar, they don't see any peaking in the UV, which was kind of interesting and they didn't suspect this. They think this quasar is still obscured by a bunch of dust in this very starbursty galaxy and it's at a really exciting place because, right, they've modeled the quasar evolution and they said, okay, there's this might be the evolutionary path of where these high redshift quasars are forming. And this kind of provides evidence for the model that they form in these really starbursty galaxies and are obscured by a bunch of dust initially, so they're not as luminous. And then the galaxy expels all the dust and then they become a lot more luminous. There's no there's not as much dust obscuring them. My prediction is that JWST, since it's already shown that it can resolve quasars from their hosts at these wavelengths, probably going to be able to constrain the black hole to stellar mass relationship much better in the next 10 years. Like Ooh. with all of the high redshift quasar observations coming up, looking at all luminosities of high redshift quasars, I think it's really exciting and comparing them to simulations. My only other prediction is I just wanted to mention that I think fast radio bursts in the next 10 years, we're going to localize 
probably thousands of them. And I think we're going to be able to do cosmology. Like I honestly, I know some people, some astronomers are skeptical of this, but I genuinely think that we'll be able to place constraints on some, maybe not cosmological parameters, but things that inform cosmological parameters or cosmology that we thought would only be possible, you know, using like galaxy surveys or something will also be possible with fast radio bursts just because they're extra galactic and they give us so much information. I mean, they literally allow us to probe the entire electron space in between us and the mm. FRB. And if you have FRBs at like Z equals three and you have them coming from all directions, it can make a really interesting map of our universe in electrons. I feel like you'll be making Carl proud. If I ever make it back to FRBs. Thanks for that excellent bite and prediction. We have to keep moving because we still have more outside astronomers to hear from today. Next up in the galaxy category, we get to hear from Brianna McDonough, who is also a fifth year at BU, and she studies galaxy formation and evolution. In the future, we'll have a better understanding of how galaxies stop and start forming stars. Why will it take 10 years? We need time to fully analyze the results of James Webb and like how much of like the early on, the data from early in the universe. I love Will's, like, really unimpressed. Like, why is it going to take that long? <laughs> Let her have it. She was, like, quick, succinct. I shouldn't interfere with the predictions. Yeah, and I think that goes along quite well with what we were just discussing with this astrobite. Really need JWST. JWST's coming in hot for all of these. <laughs> so now we have Professor Michele Trenti. A faculty member, Ooh. <laughs> trying to go with the accent today, a faculty member at the University of Melbourne who's going to tell us all about his predictions and also make some interesting predictions about how CubeSats will affect astronomy. I'm Michele Trenti. I'm a professor in the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne and both an observational and theoretical astronomer studying how the first generations of stars and galaxies formed in the universe, as well as an instrument builder in the area of nanosatellite instrumentation. And in my research area, the field has been transformed by JWST. And in 10 years time, I still think that JW will be deliver novel and amazing discoveries, in particular around studies of uh, exoplanet atmospheres, uh, as well as spectroscopic studies of the interstellar medium during the epoch of rayonization, therefore going beyond the initial results that uh, JW is delivering today on galaxies. And this will be achieved by taking spectra of GRVs originating from population three stars that will have been discovered by the next generation of high energy uh, satellites. Smaller, uh, more efficient, more equipped with advanced instrumentation compared to the traditional uh, 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 satellites that uh, astronomers and astrophysicists have been used so, uh, and working together in constellations. And taking existing concepts for high energy uh, astrophysics done with swarms of satellites, 
some of which we are participating uh, uh, in uh, with uh, uh, the activities uh, here at the University of Melbourne, I think that uh, I would like to aspirationally to see the cutting edge of astronomy to have uh, evolved towards uh, interferometry at optical infrared wavelengths in space uh, with uh, at least some technology demonstration uh, underway in 10 years uh, that we'll see as developing uh, uh, multi-spacecraft uh, space telescopes uh, working together and therefore seeing a natural path of evolution from having monolithic mirror telescopes to segmented mirror telescopes to uh, interferometry, not just on the ground, but also in space. Wow, so many great predictions. I know, he's great. He also after told me that the Event Horizon Telescope image could have been made with just a small infrared interferometer in space. Wow. Like, compared to, you know, the huge, it was like this global effort to get that image. Yeah, I love how telescopes in astronomy are either getting bigger or smaller. The size of the entire planet or so small we could launch hundreds of them. It's quite interesting thinking of how much science in the next decade is going to be done from space. It does seem like it's going that way, though, because... Like you said, Will, we really like to be at that signal to noise. Exactly. So I think that it'll definitely be, we'll probably send more stuff to space and then maybe do more follow-up sort of stuff from the ground. Right. We reached the limit of what we could do from the ground without adaptive optics. And that pushed it further, right? And you could make an argument that, in fact, Keck with adaptive optics is just as good as Hubble in some areas. But there are completely limitations we cannot get around, like the fact that UV just does not make it to the ground, and plenty of other wavelengths as well. And when you talk about gravitational waves, only so much stabilization you can do on Earth. Eventually, you got to go to space, right? And this is what makes me hopeful that the talk of the Starling constellations and other things obstructing the night sky will not be as big of a problem for astronomy. It's a problem, but it will not stop astronomy because we're going to end up going higher than that. Okay, we are coming along to the very last chunk of our predictions for this episode. Will, you spoke with our last early career predictor, is that right? That's right. It's one more BU person, my friend Sam Evans, who is a fourth year, and he has an exciting prediction for us. Something is going to fundamentally disturb our understanding of either like the Big Bang Theory or what dark matter is. Want to speculate? No. <laughs> <laughs> don't know. You don't the know what the fundamental shift is. Right. I don't. You if I knew what the shift is, then I would just shift. discover it right now, and we'd be done with it. Well, this is part of the fun, right? See, I don't think we'll know what dark matter is in ten years. Thirty years is a more realistic. Point. I think within ten years we'll discover something about it that is fundamentally flawed, but we won't necessarily have fully figured it out by then. In the well, same sense that they discovered that like the ether was fundamentally flawed. Right, but in that sense, the ether looked ridiculous 10 years later. Is the Big Bang going to look ridiculous or just... Yeah, I think I think whatever the fundamental change is, it's going to make what we've been thinking look ridiculous. In 10 years? Within 10 years, yeah. I love that. Honestly, I love that prediction. I find it very disturbing on a personal level that the universe is just going to expand forever and then everything's going to go out and just die. 
But if we find out something wrong with our theory, then, you know, who's to say that that's going to be the end? Makes me feel better, at least. I agree with you. I'm a skeptic of what they, what do they call it? The heat death of the universe. And the reason that I'm somewhat skeptical is because if we had lived during a time when dark energy were much weaker than it is, we might not have been able to detect it. And so there could be some cosmology, some force that's incredibly weak now, but at some point in the future will turn on and we probably couldn't detect it. Well, sure. But in Occam's razor sense, if you can't detect anything, why would you want to invoke it? Some additional force that... Well, I'm not, I'm not saying we should build a cosmology off of it. I'm saying that if you believe the heat death of the universe is a fundamental fact, this is how it's going to end. I disagree with that certainty. I'm just coming from a, it makes, it makes me feel better inside sort of place. (laughs) Well, this makes a great transition to our discussion topic here. The most ambitious predictions for 2033. Okay. Before we make our most (laughs) ambitious predictions, let's give our one sentence summaries. Sabrina, could you succinctly summarize the next decade in astrophysics across all subfields for us, please? That would be a very funny request if taken out of context. <laughs> I'll go ahead and summarize my astrobite, which also has a flare of the next 10 years embedded within it. This baby quasar exists in an extreme galaxy with a star formation density that's 1 million times higher than the Milky Way. And with follow-up observations with instruments such as JWST, it will continue to shed light on the complex evolutionary history of quasars. What about you, Alex? The Verisi Rubin Observatory will launch a new era. It's so overplayed at this point, but it's true. <laughs> a new era of supernova studies allowing us, for the first time, to systematically connect a dying star's early behavior to its pre-explosion mass loss physics. And now, it's time for our most ambitious predictions for 2033. Does anyone want to go first? I think that you've had us on the edge of our seats this whole half of the episode, so you should go first. All right, I'll go first. I have one, two, four predictions. Oh, my. I'll go quickly. In 10 years, we will have observed in real time the next galactic supernova, the next supernova within our own galaxy, and studied it in incredible detail. Two, we will witness a complete overhaul in our theory for galaxy evolution driven by jwst data three there's a survey called winter it's going to be sensitive to the infrared and it's looking for gravitational wave counterparts but it also might find some infrared specific transient so my prediction is winter will find new classes of infrared transients that are associated with planets falling into their host stars And we'll find enough of these that we'll actually be able to say something about exoplanet demographics. Ooh, I like that one. Wow. It's kind of like what Kirsten was saying about observing a white dwarf eating a planet. Totally connected. Number four, this is the AI-related one. We will be hosting journal clubs in 2033 with paper presentations given by the papers themselves, including a question and answer section. Can you explain? (laughs) Whoa, that's cool. I love that. We don't even have to do talks anymore. They're large language models 
like uh, ChatGPT that can be retrained on a subset of data. Transformers are also really good at being able to do this type of thing. You can train a language model or a basic transformer model on a research paper and then ask the model questions about that paper and based on its understanding of the topics covered in the publication, they will be able to give you responses. Could you do that with me if you just gave it everything I've ever written? Oh, that's kind of like the Descript thing that we were thinking about editing our podcast with. They use generative models to train it on people's voices. And so you can have it say whatever you want. It's kind of dangerous, right? Because you could have some really important person giving someone directions and being like, oh. This is kind of a side note. But I wonder if you could train it to also have the same speech patterns as the person like with Will if they trained on the papers that he has and then listened to Astro Soundbites and got his <laughs> speech pattern, then he could basically be presenting his papers, right? <laughs> I will maintain my skepticism until it'll be able to start giving us dust facts. <laughs> then I'll be convinced. <laughs> That's what I should do for this machine learning class I'm taking now, write a dust fact creator that will speak in my voice. That's the Turing test. You just <laughs> asked the, the AI to tell me a dust fact. Oh, those are great predictions, Alex. Well done. You clearly understood the prompt. <laughs> Thank you. Who's next? Okay. Here are my predictions. I think we're going to have a permanent base on the moon in the sense of the ISS. It will not be self-sufficient, but with restocking, it will be able to last an indefinite amount of time and... They may spend more than six months at a time up there. We're going to have the Europa Clipper arrive at Europa at the Jupiter system. And I think there will be, it's hard to even say what, but I think there'll be a major discovery about the water under the ice in Europa. It could be detections of amino acids, biosignatures, something that would explain how life could possibly emerge. I don't think there's life there, but something that would make it possible for icy worlds to have life. That would be a really interesting discovery. The last two are sort of coupled. We're approaching another solar maximum. There is going to be a major solar flare and coronal mass ejection that's going to cause some level of destruction of technology on Earth. It could be widespread blackouts. It could be frying of electrical cables and all sorts of other technology, fiber optics and and other things. But it's going to spur a lot of companies to build new solar storm resilient tech, which just is on nobody's radar. If you happen to be in this industry, you could make a fortune. And that's also coupled with the last one, which is a little sad. Unfortunately, a major solar maximum will deorbit Hubble, and that'll be the end of Hubble. But it will have a great legacy. It lasted way longer, did way more than anyone could have expected. Those are great predictions. Thanks. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, I'll I'll go next. I'll volunteer as tribute. I'm going to lead up to my most improbable thing. I think that within the next 10 years, we'll actually be able to see the surface of some of these planets and actually start to begin to figure out what's going on on these surfaces and actually get some spectroscopy and figure out what these planets are made out of and what this rock is made out of. When you say see, do you mean directly image the surface? 
Not CC as in like directly image, but we'll have great enough sensitivity to get spectra of the surface of these planets for the ones that don't have really thick atmospheres and actually figure out what this rock is made out of because that changes the behavior of the planet. So if you have a different type of rock and or if it's made up of something completely different than what we would actually expect from the solar system, that could tell you a lot. And then the other thing, this is really, really hopeful. So Dragonfly is supposed to launch in 2027. And it's not actually supposed to land until 2034. So this is kind of a stretch because I'm assuming that Dragonfly is going to land on Titan like a year early and we're going to have good data back. But based on this assumption, Dragonfly is landing like 2032 and we're getting back data by 2033 and we found life on Titan. (laughs) (laughs) When was the last time that NASA did something two years ahead of schedule? (laughs) That's the wildest prediction I've heard so far. (laughs) Data comes in a year ahead of schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Not even the life on a planet that has methane in the atmosphere. It's like the NASA launches ahead of schedule. (laughs) Ambitious. (laughs) All right, Sabrina, you're up. Yeah, I think mine is pretty short. And I just thought about it for some reason all my mind, maybe it's because of the chat GBT craze, all my mind could think about was what deep learning is going to do. And I think it's going to have two major effects, one on the code that we write and also on calibration of instruments. There's so much astronomy code that I write that I'm like, this could be done at least now by chat GBT, especially things that are like, there's already a lot of people writing code for at big tech companies and we just have to rewrite it. So maybe astronomers won't need to be as good of programmers in 10 years. Who knows? Hopefully not. Hopefully we still will have to program. <laughs> um, the other one is calibration of instruments because I think when you have these big neural networks and you have a lot of data to train on, I mean, if we can make ChatGPT, then we can make a telescope be able to calibrate itself. We have enough data um, and so many hours and hours and hours of people's times, entire PhDs, years go into calibrating, especially radio instruments, I'm sure optical as well, every wavelength. So I think deep learning is going to really revolutionize that by being able to, you know, incorporate years and years of data and kind of learn from itself. Love that. I love that. Yeah. AI telescope. Yeah, the next 10 years are going to be big for AI, no doubt. That would just be huge. All right, so this episode will have been our message in a bottle, and in 10 years, we'll have to uncap it and write an astrobite about everything we got right and wrong. We'll do an ASB reunion. That concludes episode 70 of Astro Soundbites, Astronomy 10 Years in the Future, Part 2. We're going to create a unified page on our website for episodes 69 and 70, with the four astrobites, some of our predictions, and the collective predictions of all of the guests across the two episodes. Speaking of our guests, thank you to Kristen Larson, Chris Mijos, Connor O'Brien, Stephanie Bernard, Melina Rice, Eric Agle, Tyler Holland Ashford, Sebastian Gomez, Katie Brevik, Nicole Lloyd Ronning, Reinhold Wilcox, Brianne McDonough, Micheli Trenti, and Sam Evans. Tell everyone you meet on the street that the place to listen to the beat of ASB is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
Audible, and Amazon Music. Do you, dear listener, have a prediction for 2033? Tweet at us. Let's start a thread with all of your predictions. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Okay. <laughs> we have to it's done, guys. <laughs> and it's like it's like the fourth uh, non sequitur will comment that needs to be cut. But <laughs> I can't come up with anything good to say today. Yeah, it's nice haircut. Okay, so. Wait, what's wrong with my haircut?